Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. We absolutely support Israel's right to defend itself in line with international law. We need to safeguard financial stability. 2024 is not going to be an easy year. We used to call it the dream of home ownership. But look at Britain now. We've got to hang on to optimism and hope because it is the biggest driver of change. Let's stop thinking of life in terms of Brexit. Let's move on and look for the future. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Lizzie Burden. Coming up on today's programme, we're going to speak to Tom Baldwin about his biography of the Labour leader Keir Starmer. But first, the Rochdale by-election. How much of a blow is the by-election defeat for Labour, having lost to George Galloway? He won the election by a landslide, taking the seat from Labour after 14 years. And his campaign was centred on a call to end the conflict in Gaza, as well as other criticism of the Labour Party. The leader of the breakaway Workers' Party of Britain says voters wanted to send Labour a message. This is for Gaza. You have paid, and you will pay, a high price. So George Galloway there. Uh, He is, of course, a former Labour MP who was kicked out of the party in 2003 for rebelling over the Iraq war. Now, Lizzie, to his critics, he's the man who met Iraq's leader Saddam Hussein, saluted the brutal dictator as courageous. He was a presenter on the Kremlin-backed RTTV. He's been accused of anti-Semitism, something that he has always denied. But on the flip side, he's now won four by-elections over a long and controversial political career. I saw him described as a fedora-wearing firebrand. He was on Celebrity Big Brother in 2006. He kind of pioneered the genre. He was on it long before Matt Hancock went into the jungle. And unlike many other fringe politicians who have dabbled in reality TV, like Nigel Farage, he has a seat now in Parliament. But there is a grim of you. The Board of Deputies of British Jews says Mr Galloway's victory marks a dark day for the UK's Jewish community. Well, joining us now to discuss what happened in Rochdale is Bloomberg's associate editor, Alva Ray. Alva, welcome back to the Politics Podcast. Really good to speak to you. Um, Delta Poll's Joe Twyman called George Galloway a constant thorn in the side of Labour. What do you think that the return of Galloway to Parliament might mean for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party? Well, Caroline... I think that's exactly the right question because the rather than thinking so much about the electoral implications for Labour at the next election, which we'll probably come on to, I actually do think that that's the single biggest thing on Labour MPs' minds this morning, how George Galloway uses his new platform in Parliament to draw attention to criticisms of Keir Starmer's position on Gaza. Um, He might do that quite effectively. He is now an elected member of parliament. Um, 
we kind of have to wait and see what he does with that. But, it, I mean, it's been uncomfortable for Keir Starmer managing his party and divisions over this issue without this firebrand, as Lizzie was quoted, um, quoted um, him being described as, without this, with this firebrand in Parliament. I think it's going to be quite tricky for Keir Starmer in that regard. I mean, it's already been tricky in Rochdale. Of course, the by-election chaos we've had already. Labour having to disown its candidate, Azhar Ali, over the comment that Israel was complicit in the October. October 7th attack. How much of an issue do you think anti-Semitism will continue to be for the Labour Party? Or do you think it might actually go away a bit if the US manages to facilitate a ceasefire? I So this is an unusual by-election for exactly the reasons that you just spelt out. Labour was essentially not on the pitch. They just didn't run a campaign. Their shadow cabinet ministers weren't there. They didn't. They weren't leafleting. They weren't there. So even though Azar Ali was done on the ballot paper as the Labour candidate, and he still, with a few friends, still mounted a little bit of a campaign, he didn't have the sort of the machine backing him. So we don't really know how Labour would have done otherwise if they had mounted a normal campaign I think that the episode with Azar Ali and those leaked comments was really embarrassing for Labour there was polling recently that a significant chunk of people in the UK still do believe that Labour has a problem with anti-semitism which will be very bad news for the Labour leadership because a big part of their message is that this is a changed Labour Party and that Keir Starmer has rooted out anti-Semitism and he's been quite ruthless about it. We have seen all that ruthlessness, kicking Jeremy Corbyn out of the party, Rebecca Long-Bailey, but it still maybe hasn't resonated with everyone in the UK and this by-election having to ditch their candidate that whole episode has kind of reinforced that and mm. as we've discussed on previous episodes of the part of the podcast he seems to have perhaps been more ruthless with the fur- further left-wingers uh, who've been accused of anti-semitism yeah well that that's the accusation against Keir Starmer for how he's handled it yes and, for sure and that's I think the feeling that that's why they missed it in Azar Ali's case that he's seen as a more moderate figure basically mm he wasn't a Corbynite and therefore they thought on on issues of anti-Semitism he would be fine. He also had the backing of Louise Elman, um, a prominent Jewish Labour figure. So I think that they didn't expect this to be an issue with him and then it, it clearly was. I think that there's still a degree of confidence within Labour to answer your question, Lizzie, that this won't keep happening. Mm. But who's to know and it's certainly not great that they've had these these days of headlines about having to drop their candidate and anti-semitism suddenly right at the top of the news agenda yeah but but um as we say i mean again this is how a war that is happening a long way away although people are very focused on it or some parts of the constituents are focused on it you know as we mentioned the, the possibility of a ceasefire that may change matters quite a great deal ahead of an, a UK general election so how does this translate writ large into national polling is there any read across from one by election into labor performance or conservative performance at the general election well you're right to say a ceasefire could change things but labor did at least change its position during this campaign to calling for an immediate ceasefire. Mm. And that didn't really resonate in Rochdale. People still voted for George Galloway and sort of protest at Labour's position. Mm. And they just feeling that even if they got to that position, they hadn't been there early enough and they were frustrated with it. Maybe this won't be in the news agenda by the time of the next election. But I think the Middle East probably will still be high up in the news. And 
Mm. Probably the main electoral issue is not so much George Galloway's Workers' Party. George Galloway is very much a sort of by-election phenomenon, even yes. though he does intend to stand candidates about 50 or so at the general election. He's really good at winning by-elections. Um, I think actually the main interesting read across is the SNP in Scotland mm. because they have been sort of further, they have gone further in calling for a ceasefire. They have a slight difference of opinion on um, Gaza to Labour. I think that that might give them some hope that they could hold on to some of their seats where they're competing against Labour. And that's where that causes more of a headache for Labour. Yeah, and Labour does need those seats in Scotland, you know, if it really wants to get the sort of landslide victory. Yes. Um, And also, I think worth pointing out, it was a very vivid quote, wasn't it, that Galloway you know, tried to put both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party in one basket, calling Starmer and Sunak two cheeks of the same backside. I can't believe you've just said those words coming well, out of your mouth, Caroline Hepburn. <laughs> <laughs> it is so vivid. I think this is why he's a, in some ways a by-election phenomenon, mm-hmm. because he says these sorts of these sorts of things. Eye-catching quotes like that. I just want to point out as well, what really surprised me was Reform's performance on the night. They came in sixth after we've seen them doing so well in other by-elections. They had been such a thorn in the Conservative side from the right wing. Does this mean that the Tories have got rid of that thorn in their side? I think it's such a good point, Lizzie, because the this performance as you say coming six their vote share was lower than the last time reform stood as the brexit party in 2019 their vote share has fallen even though the conservatives are polling so badly nationally which would suggest that they just aren't picking up those disaffected tory voters but this was such an unusual by-election that it's maybe hard to have a perfect read across but i think that it's still not looking good for reform do you think part of it is that reform was actually sweeping up votes from Labour in those other by-elections and those votes I, have now gone to George Galloway? I think it's so difficult to say because there were so many independents floating around and I think also it's hard to know how much to price in the effect of that particular candidate for reform in Rochdale. Mm. He was the former Labour MP Simon Danchuk, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, um, and he was suspended from the party for sending sexually explicit messages to a teenager. It's hard to know how much that turned off uh, voters in Rochdale, how much the, that less good performance was, was mm. down to him, or how much is actually just indicative that reform isn't doing as well as people have suspected. Alva, thank you so much for being with us, yes, and taking us through the uh, by-election result in Rochdale. Great to have you on the politics programme. Bloomberg's associate editor, Alva Ray. Well, beyond that he's a son of a toolmaker who grew up in a pebble dash semi, what do you know about Keir Starmer? How does he view the world? How many siblings does he have? And how has he, in less than four years, taken the Labour Party from a historic defeat to potentially the brink of power? Our next guest is one of the few journalists who has an answer. Tom Baldwin is a journalist, former Labour Party senior advisor and author of Keir Starmer, The Biography. Tom, welcome to the Bloomberg UK Politics podcast. Hello. I bet many journalists, me included, are going to be green with envy at the access you got to write this book, Tom. I know you say it isn't an authorised biography, but for anyone who doesn't know, tell us how this book came to be. Um, It started life as an autobiography, which I was helping and put together, and I was asked to do that because politicians don't really have very much time to write books. Um, I often think that 
books by politicians actually aren't very good as a result. It became pretty clear to me within a few months of working on this that he agreed. He felt uncomfortable about talking so much about himself or having 300 pages <coughs> of, you know, telling readers why he was so great. He's not that sort of person. He wondered why he was doing it when political leaders don't usually do it at this stage. Um, and so he killed the autobiography off. Uh, I remember going to a pub in Camden with him, as 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 one does, and um, trying to persuade him that his story still needed telling. Because it's not a story that fits... Uh, a few sound bites or even a long speech. It's a complicated, messy story. And I think part of his leadership is to say, look, I don't just fit this two dimensional image of what a political leader is meant to be. He's complicated. I think the problems we face and the solutions we need are complicated. So I persuaded him that it should be a, a biography, but I said, you know, it can't be one which you control. And I don't want your age pouring over every line and saying, you can't say that and you can't say that because it'll be rubbish. And so we agreed to do this as a authoritative but not authorised biography. And so it is independently written. It's objective as far as I can be. But I am what I am. Yeah, I'm a Labour Party supporter. I'm not making any secret of that. I hope Labour does win the next election. But that's not why I've written this book. I've written this book because I think he's interesting. He's got an interesting story to tell. And I think people do need to know more about him. I've never read so much about actually what happened to Keir Starmer, to his family, his upbringing, how he was um, as as a young child, as a young person. The illness of his mother, you know, really moved me. It was very intense, but also why he's so very private about it. Family is clearly hugely important to him, but it's also quite uncomfortable, quite difficult. Um, talking about it, you know, the, the boy done good in a way, the one that got away. Yeah, it's part of the story, but it is a complicated story. And the trouble is, that, you know, once you start trying to sum it up in one line, it immediately distorts it. Um, so, yeah, you could say the working class boy who made good and got out because he went to grammar school and university and his other three siblings didn't. And, you know, and ever since then, it's been kicking on, and now he wants to lead the country. It's more complicated than that. You know, he had an extraordinarily difficult relationship with his father, mm. who wouldn't even let him have a TV. He never said he was proud of him until, except once in his life. Uh, the whole household was wrapped up around keeping his mum alive. She rushed off to hospital several times when he was a child, and he didn't know whether she was going to come back at all. His brother had quite severe difficulties learning. There wasn't a lot of space to learn to emote there. And yeah, he was driven to get out. But he left behind all kinds of feelings for about his dad, about his mum, about the three siblings who didn't go to university. Yes. And there's very there's this very moving bit at the end after his dad's died and he's cleaning out his house. And he finds at the back of a cupboard, hidden, a scrapbook put together by his dad, who'd never said he was proud of him, showing all Keir Starmer's achievements through life, written in this very, very neat handwriting, because his dad was a toolmaker, beautifully put together, 
but he'd hidden it from them. He'd never shown his son, never shown anyone else. He did it for himself. And so with this in mind, he goes on TV and says, weird relationship, my dad, he'd never said he's proud of me. And then a woman from the village writes to him and says, oh, you've got him completely wrong. He was so proud of you. I'd go and see him after your mum died and he'd be sitting there watching the Parliament channel just hoping to catch a glimpse of you. And then Keir's thinking about the last time he saw his dad and they'd never hugged and they never never said he loved him and his dad never said he loved him. And he found out his dad loved him and was proud of him because he became leader of the Labour Party. So he's going through all this stuff in a white light of, of public glare as a politician. Mm. So the whole thing is much more complicated and multi-layered than working class boy made good. Yes, and 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 I it sticks with me that line that actually when he went to see his father, you write in the book that that they didn't hug, that that life is complicated, and that even at that point, at the end of his father's life, that they didn't actually have that kind of heart to heart or some kind of exchange. I mean, gosh, I felt that when I read that in your book, and to me, it made me think that Keir Starmer is far more reminiscent for me of a post-war generation in Britain rather than, let's say, a swinging 60s North London man. You know, he was born in 1962, but he's sort of almost his, you know, reminiscent of post-war uh, generations, perhaps. What do you think? Yeah, he's a provincial boy. You know, he grew up in a, in a rather indistinct place in Surrey, which, you know, right, you know, you wouldn't know where it was in Britain unless you came from there. Um, and he's also got this quite complicated relationship with class in that if you're working class in a village in Surrey, it's very different to being working class in Bolton. So his dad, as he's famously told us so many times, was a toolmaker. To be a toolmaker in Bolton is to be respected. It's the person who makes the tools, which makes everything else possible. To be a toolmaker in Oxted in Surrey is to be someone who works in a factory. And so this relationship of not seeing people's worth is a big part of him now. Mm. When he talks about class, as he does, and he's first Labour leader for quite a long time to talk about class, it's not some sort of Marxism. It's about believing that people should be recognised for what they do and the worth and their contribution and respected. And he talks about snobbery and how snobbery judges people. And he talks about wanting to break the class ceilings that hold people back. That's one of his five missions. So he's a, he's a different Labour leader, a different kind of politician to the ones we've had in recent years, which have been about spectacle and show. He's dourer. People say he's dull. I don't think he's dull, but he's very difficult to define. And that's why it's taken a book. Yeah, it's taken a book. You've had the chance to get up close and personal with him. Why do you think he struggles to get his personality across publicly, to have the same dazzling charisma as a Blair or a Johnson? Do you think he's getting better at that, perhaps? He is. And one of the mistakes we make in the media is to make an assessment early on and not understand that politicians learn and change. If you compare the speeches he makes now or performance in PMQs, there's streets better than they once were. And one of his chief characteristics, I'd say, is his ability to learn and persevere and get better at what he does. But that said, he's never going to 
you know, make a conference speech like Neil Kinnock or perform in PNQs like William Hague or conjure up castles in the sky like Tony Blair. But maybe that's not the most important thing for a political leader or what our country needs right now. I, I think sometimes in politics we want everyone to fit these rather narrow tram tracks of what a politician or what a political leader is meant to be, their tight backstory and their big vision and their easily digestible policy sign bags. I think most people recognise that life's more complicated than that. Most people wouldn't actually be able to codify their own ideology or place themselves in an ideological spectrum. And nor does he really. He's got values. I think they're quite recognisable British values, almost post-war British values. And as such, you know, it's like common law or our road system. It doesn't follow straight lines, but it does get you somewhere eventually. Hmm. I think that's very interesting, isn't it? Um, the idea of evolution, of meritocracy, of improving along the way. Can you change government but also the way that politics is done and seen? Is this the moment that that happens? I also want to go, though, to um, Starmer as, as Labour leader. I mean, Labour's relationship with anti-Semitism in recent months and years has been a big part of Starmer's leadership of Labour. It's also part of his personal story. Going forwards, how does Labour handle anti-Semitism and what is a major crisis in the Middle East? If he's leader, let's say, by the end of the year, that could be, you know, a huge issue still. Yeah, they sound like separate questions, but they're not, are they? Um, you know, what's happening with Israel Gaza is leading to a horrible rise in both anti-Semitic and Islamophobic attacks in Britain on our own streets and our own communities. So they're linked. And they're, in a way that's sort of more salient to British politics than our position on a ceasefire because we don't have a great deal of influence in the Middle East. I think Starmer would be keen to build our influence and by showing that he's can be a stable ally to other allies rather than posturing. Um, and that's very much where he's gone since the party conference. I think his approach to this is interesting. It says something about who he is. That he doesn't he makes mistakes. He's fallible. He's still I think learning how to be a leader of a major political party. He came to politics quite late in life. And people do make mistakes. What's interesting about him is how he responds to an error. So he screwed up badly when he misspoke in that LBC interview after party conference and appeared to imply that he's rather right to cut off water. I don't think it's what he meant to say, but he did appear to imply that. Didn't correct the mistake long. And at that time, I don't think he knew a great deal about the Middle East. He knows about other aspects of foreign policy because he dealt a lot with that in the time of the CPS and when he's a shadow Brexit secretary. But he didn't know a great deal about the Middle East. What impresses me is when he screws up, he doesn't double down behind the mistake. He learns. He perseveres. He tries to get better. Well, that's he the generous view. Says, 
that he that he learns from his mistakes. The less generous view is that he's a flip flopper. That's the characterization by the Conservative mm-hmm. Party that he'll say anything necessary yes, in the moment to advance himself. It, I wonder mm-hmm. from what you've learned about him, Tom. What does he actually care about? Because he seems to be uh, apt at saying, uh, you know the thing that we want to hear at the time but as we know here at Bloomberg in the markets past performance isn't a guide to future performance he's someone who changes his mind he does change his mind um and yeah you can characterize that as flip-flopping um I think sometimes what appear to be flip-flops aren't uh I think sometimes people look at what Labour's offering in terms of the policies and say all oh, it's all you know about what he's not going to do where rather than what he is going to do and some of it is still pretty radical of it is a sort of radical hiding in plain sight in some ways about this policy program but again it comes down to what sort of political leaders we want hmm. do we want political leaders who never ever change their mind i don't do we want political leaders who when the facts change don't change do you want political leaders who say in 2021 we can spend all this money and then when the cost of borrowing goes up by 70 billion pounds for the government debt yeah. oh, i haven't changed my mind we're still going to borrow all that money no, no. i mean i think yeah you know, it's about the difference between real people and politicians yes in and most that's... walks of life adapting to changing circumstances is seen as a quality yes it is it is except no but the the issue though is as you say a radical hiding in plain sight the issue with not being able to deliver a potted version of yourself for mass market consumption is that people then feel insecure about what you actually might do you know, if you win office. I mean, yes, I know we have no Labour Party manifesto, but the the whole point of being leader and the figurehead right at the, you know, at the front of the troops is so that people have something, somebody's own backstory to grasp onto and to understand where that leader is going to take the rest of the country. And not sure that Keir Starmer's position is that clear. It's hard to tell people that you're someone who's going to adapt um, I, I'm not sure I agree with you on that, I'm afraid. Mm. I mean, you know, in the end, you're going to be attacked by your opponents, whether you stick to everything you've ever said all the way through your life, or whether you don't. You're going to be attacked by them, whatever you do. And you have to take a choice about which one you're more comfortable with. He's more comfortable with being attacked for changing his mind when circumstances change than sticking to a policy position designed four years ago through thick and thin even when the world around him has transformed in terms of whether it's scary and worrying for people i don't think people see that about him i think people see him as i mean the criticism made of him is that he's reassuringly dull rather than scary and making people feel insecure certainly given what's happened in the last 14 years and in particular under Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, the idea that people should be more worried about a Labour government setting out very clearly what its five missions are, saying that the policies will adapt to circumstances, setting out very clearly the fiscal rules that it will follow. I don't think that sounds particularly scary to me, but the way in which they, the, 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 the goals they're seeking, I think are radical. 
the ways they will get there will be pragmatic. And that's how most people operate in most walks of life, except politics. We can't set ourselves up in politics to, you know, to want this big radical vision. And then we go, oh, that's amazing. And then we watch it fail. And then we go, God, that's why everyone's so disillusioned with politics. I mean, I sometimes use this metaphor about, it feels sometimes in politics like we're at the bottom of a ravine. And we're expecting the political leader to come along and say, I have a new, bold, radical plan to climb out of this ravine using only my teeth, because no one's done that before. We go, that's amazing. And they all fail. <laughs> and Starmer, by contrast, says, why don't we try the footpath? And then if the footpath's blocked, well, let's find a way around the blockage in the footpath. And it's not that fun to watch. It's not going to make great headlines. And the lobby aren't going to go running around and wetting their pants about it. But you might actually end up getting somewhere. <laughs> Tom, I'm really grateful that you've come on the podcast. I learned so much about the Labour leader from your book. There's one thing that I have to ask you, though, before you go. And it's, what would be your bet on what the skeleton in Starmer's closet that comes back to bite him will be? Or what area, at least, of the closet is that skeleton in? Oh, what a question. Um, well, every three or four weeks or so, we're told by one Sunday newspaper or another that the Tory party have put together a dossier. I'm told it's been put together by Andrew Gilligan, um, who paid by the government to do it, but I don't know whether that's true. Um, and that they put together a dossier of all the legal cases he's done and his record at the DPP. So maybe there's something, some bones will shake out of that particular closet. I mean, I spent quite a lot of time rummaging through it myself and <laughs> didn't find anything too smelly. I've written about it quite length and I think I've kicked the tires of some cases, which you, know, you probably won't particularly like me kicking the tires of, but you know, I don't think there's anything lethal there, um, but perhaps there is. I don't know. I mean, the thing about politics is is the unknown unknowns, isn't it? It's, um, you know, we all think that politics follows on these tram tracks, and it doesn't. I mean, when we talk about Europe, we think, oh, is it all about, you know, is Starmer going to align with a single market? If Trump wins in November this year, it could be that Europe is fighting a war against Ukraine on its own without America. Suddenly, at that point, Labour's plans for EU security pact or European security pact become more significant, perhaps, than the single market. So circumstances will change and circumstances will disinter skeletons or change the landscape anyway. And I don't know what I've done with this book, which I hope Bloomberg listeners will buy and read because I think it's a proper authoritative study and I've covered things which other people haven't. If people read this book, I think they'll get an understanding of how he'll approach the mm. unknown event, how he'll react to circumstances. And that's the best we can do. I, I can't look into crystal ball and tell you everything that will happen in the next five years. What I've tried to do is describe the person who will operate in that environment. And it's a very different person to the way I think the media have usually described him. 
So, Tom Baldwin, uh, our thanks to the journalist, former Labour Party senior advisor, author of Keir Starmer, the biography. So interesting, his view on on Keir Starmer. I think I'm amazed how little I knew about his backstory. Um, And as Baldwin puts it, it's about... The book is about how Keir Starmer will meet history, will meet events. And I think that's still something that a lot of voters don't understand. The pitch seems to be a saner, more sensible uh, leader for a UK that would be richer and more stable. That seems to be the the view of what of what they're pitching as a Labour Party. Yeah, a more human leader seems to be what Tom Baldwin takes away from all he learned about Keir Starmer. It's particularly interesting after the night of drama we've just had in Rochdale, and I've had a few in my time, Caroline, <laughs> growing up in the north. But it's I have to wonder, is there a is it a reopening of all the difficulties over Israel and anti Semitism that Starmer has spent years trying to stamp out during his time as leader Mm. and as we heard from Tom there these issues are such a personal one for Keir Starmer well that's it from us for today we'll be back of course next week when we expect to be talking a lot more about Jeremy Hunt and the budget that's it from us for today if you like the program don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you listen this episode was produced by James Woolcock and our audio engineer was Marufal Hussain I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepker. We'll be back with more on Monday. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.